so listen, here's, here's really what we're doing today. We, we started a series uh, uh, two weeks back. Last week we heard from Reed about Texas Baptist Student Ministries and all the amazing things that they're doing there. And we learned that, uh, that they're going and they're having co- gospel conversations with college students. And we also learned that they are trying to, uh, to have a presence on every college campus in San Antonio. Did you know that that in, its, in, in this area, for the San Antonio greater area, do you know that is about 15 campuses? Maybe we should pray. We should pray that God would send people as missionaries to those campuses so that the gospel could be made known in that generation. So as I begin this morning, I have a question for you. Have you ever uh, met a, I believe, in spite of person? Let me tell you what I mean. Somebody, somebody that believes beyond the challenges that they are currently in, that believes in something more. Do you know somebody, or maybe you are somebody that regardless of the circumstance, regardless of what it is that you enter into, you are a, I believe in spite of the obstacle. I believe in spite of everything that is against me, that there's something more, that God is going to do something great and more, that there's something else. That type of person that believe in spite of person, they look beyond. They look beyond what's right in front of them. They look to the horizon. They look beyond that, and they go on with their lives. But how do you do that if you're someone who is going through difficulty? It, say, say you're going through difficulty and it's financial and, and it's one of those places where you are so upside down you never know if you will be made right again. You're, you're struggling in your health and, and your greatest prayer is just that you would find some relief, but relief doesn't seem to be in the cards. Or maybe your family has just kind of disintegrated. There's so much tension going on in your family and you don't know if it will ever be made whole again. Or maybe, maybe your marriage, maybe your marriage is going through a rough spot and the, the big D word has been uttered. And all you want is for restoration, but you don't know how to get there. But have you met people that in spite of all of the difficulties that they see, that they are believe in spite of people, they have confidence. They have confidence that God is absolutely unshakable. In fact, these people, when they're going through the thick of it, they still have joy. They still have that joy, that countenance that you're like, how can you be going and smiling and saying that God is good when I see what's going on around you? How can you have peace? How can you trust God when your life has just, from on the outside, looks like it's falling apart? But these people, the unshakable ones, the ones that believe in spite of, they have this peace that surpasses all understanding. The the kind of peace that the Apostle Paul spoke about, wrote about. He said, it's that peace that wells up from within that is beyond words, that you couldn't put a, a word to how you have peace because it's there and it's planted by our Heavenly Father. So from the outside, people like that, and you might say, you know what, people like that, honestly, they don't make any sense to me. 
And so here's where you land. You go, okay, are they in denial? I mean, really, right? I mean, maybe, maybe there's some people that are just so happy-go-lucky and, and they just want life to be good, so they just talk about that it's good, right? And maybe they just can't see all this stuff that's going on around them. So you're like, those poor, pitiful people, bless their heart. But of course, of course they're not. They're not those kinds of people. They trust God. And maybe that's where we kind of step back because we, they, they trust God in their story. It's, it's absolutely inspiring. It's absolutely inspiring. And, you know, sometimes it's a little disturbing. For some of you, the reason that you became a Christian is because you know someone who is one of these people. And you may be thinking to yourself, you may be thinking to yourself, listen, I, the way that life goes, the way that, that I see the trajectory going, I just want to be that kind of a person, even if there's nothing to it, even if it's, even if it's just this wishful thinking, I just want to be a person that wakes up in the morning and has peace, that wakes up and has joy, and that feels like everything ultimately is going to be okay, because that would be better than the life I'm living now. But I don't have confidence. I, I, I don't have the confidence that everything's going to be okay. I don't have confidence that no matter what happens, that God is there. Because to tell you the truth, the future, it scares me to death. In fact, death scares me to death. These believe in spite of people. These believe in spite of people who are facing difficult circumstances. They're just fine. They walk through like they have a wrinkle-free life. And I don't know about you, but I want to be one of those people that, that no matter the circumstances, I am there and I am engaged in knowing that our Heavenly Father has everything taken care of. And so we internalize these things. And, and so when we see someone that should, by all practical purposes, be falling apart, but they have this unknown, unqualified, intangible belief that God has this whole thing under control. So we internalize it. Hey, listen, if I was going through that, if, if I had lost everything, how would I respond? And I don't know about you, but when I do that, I become the hero of the situation, right? When I read the scriptures and I read what the disciples did not understand, I'm like, I would have seen it, right? I would have gotten it. I wouldn't have didn't wait then we figure out that there's something different. But when we meet somebody that has that type of, of believe in spite ofness, we meet them and we go, wow. Have you ever heard of Dr. Francis Collins? He served as the director of the Human Genome Project. He met one of those believe in spite of people while he was doing his residency. 
He was doing rounds in medical school, and he met one of these believe in spite of people, and it absolutely wrecked him. Dr. Collins was given the task of mapping the human genome. That's 3.1 billion letters inside every single cell. And the reason that's remarkable is because it helps us to understand where some diseases come from and how they impact our families and how they are part of the family unit, the family system. In other words, this Dr. Collins guy, he's absolutely super intelligent. So he was doing rounds at 27. He's doing rounds at 27 as a student, and he kept interacting with Christians with Christians who were terminal patients that could not be cured. He interacted with these people as he went by. You know, you know how, have you ever been to a teaching hospital? You're in the room and they wake you up every 10 minutes. You're supposed to get rest in the hospital, but here we are, right? But they'd come in and they'd ask the questions. They, you know, how you doing? You know, and, you know, this hurt? Yeah, it still hurts. Okay, well, you know, just writing those things down. And he would interact with these people, and he kept talking with them, and many of them. And, and he, he, the, the subject almost always came to them talking about their faith. They talked about their belief in, in their Heavenly Father. They talked about their belief in heaven. That one day, even though the outlook was not positive, it was they were slowly moving towards their death. They talked about being in heaven and being reunited with their loved ones. Now, Dr. Collins, he grew up agnostic, and this conversation was a little bit unnerving to him. And he wrote a book, though, later called The Language of God. And this is what he had to say about that moment in his life where he's making the rounds at 27 with the terminal patients. Here's what he said. It's a quote. If faith was a psychological crutch, it must be a very powerful one. If it is nothing more than a veneer of cultural tradition, why were, why were these people not shaking their fists at God and demanding their friends and family stop, stop all the talk about a loving and benevolent supernatural power? So one afternoon, as he was making his rounds, as he had done before, he had a conversation with a, a young woman who was there dying. And she had talked with him many times about her faith. She had done so on several occasions. And on this occasion, she asked, Doctor, what do you believe? And that question ended up absolutely changing his life. He writes, his face flushed. And he stammered out, well... I'm not really sure. And he wrote about this conversation. He said at that moment he was faced with its willful blindness and my arrogance. And he began a journey. He began a journey to see what could be seen, to discover what could be discovered. And as he did that, in the end he found out that the claims about Jesus, they were absolutely compelling. And that there was more than enough evidence. Once he started to look. 
Jesus predicted that those that would seek after him would find him. And John helped us with this idea as he wrote the Gospel of John. And we discovered two weeks ago that Christianity is not just about believing or taking something by faith. See, John and the disciples, they did not follow Jesus because of faith. In fact, John would caution us against only taking something by faith. They followed because of what they had seen and what they had heard. In fact, John encouraged his readers to follow because of what they had seen and what they had heard as well. He says this in 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it. John said, we have seen and now, John, one of the, the, the uh, disciples, he, he had outlived all of his friends. He had heard the stories. He had heard what had happened to them. And he decided that his role was to encourage others and to document his experience in what we call the Gospel of John. And he was, about, he was not content just to tell us what happened, not to just tell us a, a nice little story. He had an agenda. In fact, John spelled it out for us in John chapter 20. He said, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. He said, there's more than what we just wrote here. And they're not written in this book, but they, these that are written, the ones that I put in here, they were written so that you would believe. So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. So John organized his account around seven signs. These signs, they convinced him. And he hoped that they would convince you, his readers, us. That looking forward, not even knowing that 2,000 years later we would be reading his letter that we would be convinced as well. So two weeks ago, we looked at the wedding in Cana. And today, we're going to be looking at the healing of the nobleman's son. That's in John chapter 4. So after the wedding, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And as Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he is a little bit taken back by what he experiences in the temple. He sees that the money changers are, are, cha are charging these outrageous rates. And he goes through and he clears the temple. And they celebrate Passover. He cleanses the temple. And John said that many believed in his name. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus, along the way, 
he had a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And in fact, in that conversation with Nicodemus, there's one of the more popular verses that we know by heart, John 3, 16, right? And in that conversation, he tells Nicodemus that, that he needs to learn how to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. And Jesus then moves on and he goes through Samaria and he encounters a Samaritan woman. We don't really know her name, but we would love to know her name. But tell you what, when we get to heaven, we can know her by name. This woman at the well, that's how we know her. He spent time and he, he spoke to her and there was an enormous life change that happened there. And then he headed north then to Galilee. Now, one of the things that we need to understand about Jesus is that Jesus, everywhere he went, trouble was kind of going behind him because the Pharisees were trying to trip him up. And there were moments where it wasn't safe for him to stay in one spot for too long. So Jesus went down to Jerusalem and went back up to Cana and Galilee. So Galilee is like a state, okay, and then the little cities around. So he went to Cana. John chapter 4, starting in verse 46. So he came again to Cana and Galilee. Just in case you forgot, that's where he made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So sign one that we investigated two weeks ago was a joyful occasion. It was a wedding. And that was the moment where Mary comes up to Jesus and says, hey, listen, there's a problem. The celebration is going to grind to a halt if you don't intervene. And he's like, woman, it's not my time. No, he said, my dear mother. It is not my time, because we know what happens if you do the other, right? But he, she walked away, said, do as he says. And he goes, and he continues the celebration, and it is a joyous celebration. The second sign, which we're looking at today, is a heartbreaking occasion. And Jesus gets involved in both celebration and sickness, An important detail is this. Capernaum was about an eight to nine hour walk from Cana. So in this, that's the first thing to note. And then secondly, this nobleman is likely an official, an aristocrat. He's wealthy. He has people. He has an entourage. Anyone here ever want to have an entourage? No? Oh, just me? Okay, cool. Um, He's wealthy, and he, it's likely like a three-hour chariot or horse ride, and he's probably a Sadducee. He was probably a, a, a religious aristocrat, and he was likely an intellectual. But he was also not sure of the afterlife. And so what happens? He said, whatever happens just happens, and, and it's fate. But in this account today... He was a desperate father. And in being a desperate father, there was um, obviously a desperate mother attached to this. And in fact, probably one of the reasons, and this is just kind of conjecture, this is not like theology here, this is just me imagining how it went. It was, hey, our son is sick, what are you going to do about it? I don't know. (laughs) What about that rabbi? Have you heard about that rabbi Jesus? Yes, we've heard about that rabbi Jesus. We talked about it. He's doing all these amazing things. She said, you need to go get him. He says, woman, I'm, I'm, yes, ma'am. That's what he says. He says, I'll go. 
I'll get him probably after a little bit of an intense fellowship. But he wants as desperately as she does for her, for their son to be healed. And so in this moment, as he is thinking on how can I do this, the only thing I know to do is to go and find someone that we know for sure has done the miraculous. And so John says this. He says, when this man had heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee. How did he know? Because people were talking about Jesus and they were following his movements. And Jesus' movements, they traveled faster than his feet did. And he went down and he asked. He asked Jesus to come down and to heal his son because his son was at the point of death. And in this moment, it wasn't good enough for him to send his servants. His wife said, you get yourself down there and you make sure the job is done. And so when he came to Jesus, he didn't just ask. He pleaded. He asked him over and over. He pleaded. He, he, he whispered it. He asked. And, and the dignity that he had as a nobleman was just kind of thrown out the window. The theology that he was holding tightly to was, was just kind of put off to the side because he was a desperate father. And what happens next, it sounds a little harsh, but it's not. Because Jesus states what he knows to be true. He addresses the people who are standing around. And he says this, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now some translations say you will never believe. In this you, there's one of these interesting things about the way that language works when you translate it. It should have, the Texas version would have said this, unless y'all see the signs and wonders, you, y'all will never believe. The you is a plural. It means you people. Unless you people see signs, unless you see something that makes you go, oh my goodness, I can't believe that happened. You're never going to believe. It was not so much an answer to the nobleman's request, but a reflection, a reflection on the hearts of the people and the occasion of the request. Jesus basically says, there's no way that you're going to believe unless I do something that convinces you. Because for you, for, for you in this moment, seeing is believing Seeing is what will move you to being open to belief. Jesus decides to give them something to talk about. He decides that in this moment, he will bring some healing. He gave them something to talk about, and it's something that we're talking about 2,000 years later. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Sir, would you stop what you're doing here Get on this horse and you come with me because my son, my boy, he needs a miracle. He leans in and he whispers because he's not there to debate theology. He calls Jesus his Lord, his master. He's getting as humble and as low as he can. He's desperate. 
He's desperate, but he's confident. And you may ask, why? Why is he so confident? It's because he heard the rumors. He heard the rumors of the Son of Man. He heard the stories of a Savior, this man Jesus, that they asked, could he be the one? For the nobleman, there were two options. Jesus comes or he doesn't. If he comes, if he goes with me, then my dear son, my dear son could live. But if he doesn't, there's no way. He may die. And he learned this, that he has to trust Jesus based on the testimony of others. In fact, that's what Jesus asked you and I to do as well, that we trust him based on the testimony of others. And Jesus said to him, go. Just casually, just literally, hey, go. Go on about your business. No need to hurry. No need to worry. Just go. Just go ahead. Go. Your son will live. And in this moment, like any other husband, he goes, you want me to go without you. There's going to be two deaths now. (laughs) A quick glance over at his bodyguard. He's probably assessing the situation. Do I just kind of, do we take him by force? Do we kind of wrap him up? I mean, can can we do that? Can I just take him? Can Can we throw him in the back of the chariot in the trunk? You know, can we do that? But Jesus says, go. Just go. Your son's going to live. Why don't you just go into the market, you know, go buy some flowers, you know, saunter home, bring a gift or something, you know. But this is kind of where we live. And this is an event of a lifetime reduced into a day. And as we think about how we relate to this story, we are asked, we're asked to take Jesus at his word based on the testimonies of other people. Based on the words that we read in the scriptures, we are, are, are asked to trust in Jesus because of what we've read. We're asked to entrust our lives to Jesus because of the words that we read on a page and the testimony of people whose lives have been changed. To trust our health, even when our health is failing. To trust our finances when... We don't know where the next paycheck is going to come from. To hang our future, our future on a rabbi from Nazareth. To trust our sick loved ones, our closest relationships. We're asked to to trust them to Jesus based on other people's words. And we're supposed to go about our days with our unanswered prayers as if. We're to go about our days with our unanswered prayers, our questions left unanswered, and we're to go about as if Jesus is who he claimed to be. 
And you've seen other people do that. In fact, you, you admire them because it's inspiring to see somebody that believes as if Jesus is who he says he is. That believes as if God will come through even when it feels like nothing is going to happen. It's inspiring and it shows great faith to have such confidence. And it's also a little intimidating. For someone to have joy, peace in the unknown. To have joy in the midst of uncertainty. To have peace in the midst of their pain. And that type of living, that type of thought process, that living as if God is God and Jesus is Messiah. That's what got Francis Collins' attention. And maybe it's what got yours. So the nobleman stares at Jesus. Assessing the situation, I should have brought the duct tape. He had already lowered himself by begging. And and now as he looks at his entourage, he's like, we could do this. I mean... You've seen those disciples, they look a little frail. He sees that Jesus said go. And he feels like he's not getting what he came for. He takes a deep breath and he makes his decision. And he makes the decision that people have been making for 2,000 years since. He made a decision that changed the trajectory of his life. And guys, this is a stiff test. He has absolutely nothing but the word of Jesus. He has absolutely nothing but the word of Jesus. Go, your son will live. That's all he has. But he determines that this is enough. And he rises with the implied demand of faith. He believes Jesus and he goes on his way. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Then he believed as if what Jesus said could be trusted. So he went on his way. He walked away from the only one who could save his son because he trusted him and he walked by faith, not by sight. Can you imagine what that's like? Now, some of you can because you've been walking this way for quite some time. You've been walking this way for years. And, but this story is a lifetime condensed into a day. Into one event of learning how to trust God. And so the account continues. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Now the servants didn't just travel all this way just to give an update. Hey, you know what? The fever's still there. No, they came to say that he was better. So he asked, um, so he asked them the hour when, their son, when his son began to get better. And they said to him yesterday, about the seventh hour, 
the fever had left. And I can imagine that a chill ran down his spine. And his eyes, they welled up with tears. And as he's going towards home, he glances back to Cana. Because the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. So at that moment, he kicks it in high gear, right? He leaves the others in the dust, and he makes a cloud of dust, and he makes it home and goes through the door. And, and, and his wife, she greets him, and she tells him about the miracle. But she notices that he's not surprised. And then she goes, hold on a second. Where's the rabbi that you were supposed to return with? And he tells her the story. And he tells her the story that changed the trajectory of his entire life. And it changed the trajectory of his entire household. And he, and him, he himself and believed in all who were in his household, his family, his wife, his, his children, his servants, all who were there. And John said, now, this is the second sign that Jesus did when he came home, when he came from Judah to Galilee. And it was a story of us understanding what does it mean? What does it mean to walk by faith? Because it's not wishful thinking. Walking by faith is living every day as if Jesus is who he claimed to be. As if his words are true. As if God is our heavenly father. As if your sin is forgiven. As if you are loved. As if you are an ambassador of an absolutely unique brand of love. Jesus says, as you are loved, you are to love one another. Walking by faith means that we are living with confidence, knowing that our faith, our sacrifice, our generosity, that all of those things are not in vain because they are anchored to something that is real. It's not just a hope. I hope that one day, I hope that it will turn out okay. It is an anchored faith to something that is real. Walking by faith is what causes other people to pause. And at the end of the account, of John's account, he records a conversation that was between Jesus and the eleven after the resurrection, before he ascended. Jesus, knowing that the signs would be documented for future generations. Jesus, knowing this, he said, with you in mind, with me in mind. He says to them, because you have believed in me. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who believe based on what they've seen and what they've heard. Blessed are those who believe because they saw. But John would remind us that, yes, he was an eyewitness. But he thought it was absolutely essential that he documented his time with Jesus. Jesus continued, blessed are those 
who have not seen and have yet believed. John wrote so that you, so that I could know what happened. And it wasn't just so that we would know. It was way bigger than that. He said, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So my hope is that you, as we journey with John through the life of Jesus, that you would come to believe and have faith in his name. Walking by faith, living as if Jesus, living as if Jesus is who he claimed to be. So I have a question. What happens? What happens when a generation embraces the idea that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. I have a video I want you guys to watch. I speak the name of Jesus over you. I was there at chapel on Wednesday morning when it all happened. I don't really know what we would call it. Some people are calling it like revival, renewal, maybe like an outpouring. I speak the name because it's all that I can do. And I've witnessed students there worshiping in a really unique way. The students are just pouring their hearts out and just really like talking to God. I pray for your healing. The circumstances would change. I pray that the fear Everyone was calling their friends to be like, you need to experience this goodness. I got a text to come to chapel and bring friends. My friend texted me telling me to come to Hughes right that moment. I went and I felt like that was God trying to tell me something that, look what you've been missing out on and you've been hurt for a really long time and it's time to come back. a lot of healing, a lot of chains being broken. After all this time, we've been broken and hurt. We were witnessing healing. The Spirit of the Lord is here. These walls have been broken down like every day. so much reconciliation and healing. A true revival of my soul. It's not about us. Asbury is just a place that the Holy Spirit chose and we're being just witnesses and vessels to what he's doing. The mighty name of Jesus. 
Hughes Auditorium to experience this. God is not only at Hughes, God is everywhere else. You can worship him everywhere else. You can feel his presence everywhere else. He is God of every single place. And it's cool that he's showing up here in a really powerful way, but he can show up anywhere in a really powerful way and he'll meet you right where you're at. So in case you hadn't uh, heard, a couple weeks back, there was a, an event that happened in Kentucky. It happened at Asbury uh, College. They um, experienced a chapel service that didn't stop. It resulted in so many students coming that they had to shut down the city. We're talking people from all over the world. In fact, there's a, a map image that we'll put up on the screen. And see that kind of red haze over the oceans? That's strings going from points on a pin, uh, pins on a map over into Wilmore, Kentucky. And if you can see that, the reaching is all across the world. And so we get a, a message or a phone call from our, our boy, uh, Logan, it's our boy. Um, saying, hey, I have an opportunity, and I want to talk to you guys about it. So, Logan, why, why is it that you decided to go to Wilmore? So I decided to go to Wilmore um, Actually, my leader for 33, we were doing interviews for the leadership team, and before we started that day on Thursday, it was around 4 o'clock. He's like, have you heard what's going on in Asbury? And I said, yes, sir, I have. He's like, well, how would you like to go to Asbury and to experience it yourself? And so I said, yes, I would love to go. Um, having no idea what that would entail, um, and, you know, Kentucky's pretty far away, and so I was like, okay, so what does this mean? And he's like, well, go talk to Daniel McAfee, um, VSM director of UMHB, um, at 5 after we're done with the interviews and talk to him. So I talked to him, and I talked to another guy named Luke Prudholm, and we were just talking like, okay, is this even possible? And so Danny um, was very generous, and he gave me the 33 ministry card and said, use this for your food, for your gas, for anything that you need, so you can go. Um, but we didn't have a car. We didn't have even a place to sleep that night. Um, and so we just ended the meeting. We're like, well, we're not sure if we're going to go. Like, we might have to leave Saturday. We might have to leave, you know, sometime late Friday night. But we made a bunch of phone calls. I called, like, eight or nine people, and everybody said, sorry, man, I have plans. I can't go. So I'm like, well, what do I do now? Um, and so went to 33 that night at 6, and so I talked to one of my leaders. His name is also Luke. Um, so that made that kind of difficult, uh, trying to direct who I was talking to. Um, but he's like, yeah, I can go. And so we're, all, we're like, great. Now we have uh, money. We have a way to get there, but we don't have anywhere to sleep. And so it was around 8.30, and we just called every, called on the phone, and you know, we're like, we have to go. 
we just have to. Like, even if we have to sleep in our car, we'll bring um, sleeping bags and we'll just sleep in the car because we, we just got to go. And I just felt like this thing, this presence from God just saying, calling to me, just, Logan, you got to go. And there's so many reasons why, you know, I shouldn't have gone. Like, I had schoolwork. I had all these other responsibilities. I actually had to cancel leadership interviews the next day that I was going to have at Friday. But I knew that God was calling me to. And we stepped out into faith and said we're going to go. Um, later that night at 1030, we got word that our hotel has been provided. Um, and so we're like, great. Um, and we left the next day at 6. So. Yeah, so, so you guys travel the uh, 15-ish short hours up to Asbury. You get there about, um, what, 1030, 1130 at yeah, night. And worship is going on. There's, there's people all in the, in the quad, in the area around the chapel. There's, there's lines, right? And uh, so describe uh, for us, if you can, just kind of the, um, the, the worship, the people, the feel of what was going on. Yeah, so to give you all context, um, Kentucky this time of year is very, very cold. When we were there, it was 32 degrees, but there's still like 400 people outside waiting in line to get into this chapel at 1130 at night. Um, they were praying together. They were singing worship songs, um, talking and sharing, and um, we get there, and so um, we get invited in, and we go through the, the two doors. There's like the main lobby section, and there's like the chapel area, and we go in, and it's just roaring with praise, authentic and true worship. Um, people from like all over the world, as you can see by the map behind us, um, all over the world. There's, uh, there's people from Brazil, there's people I met that were from India, um, and everybody was just pouring their heart out to God, giving him everything. There's people weeping, there's people praying to, with one another. Um, this guy named Sean actually prayed with me and for me, and I prayed for him, and I only met him and I only knew him for like five minutes, but there's no boundaries. It was just true unity in Christ. And that's something that I've never truly experienced. I mean, we talk about unity in Christ all the time, but you could feel in that room that everybody was united. Um, and the worship itself, it wasn't structured. Um, it was actually led by the crowd, not by the people up on stage. And so someone in the crowd would break out into a different song and we'd transition into that. And there's times where we shared scripture. There's times where it was just we all prayed together. But um, it really felt like I was there for 15 or 20 minutes. But we were there for an hour and 30 minutes just praising and worshiping God that night. And people were going up to the, to the front of the stage to pray with one another. And it was just something so beautiful of just like the love and the compassion that you really felt in that room. And who it was all for was for God. And that was something that was truly, truly special. So most of us have not experienced something like that as far as a bunch of, well, I mean, we've probably experienced places where there's a bunch of college students, right? Uh, football games and the like. And so this is way different than like a Sunday morning worship time. Um, so if you were to say, um, you, you mentioned unity, but, but what's, a, what's a, a takeaway that you have? Just one. I know there's probably like a billion, but... Yeah, there's so many things that I could share that I've taken away and what God has shown me, but what these people were doing was they were laying everything down. Their burdens, their hurts, their illnesses, their sickness, their plans, their desire for to have control over their lives. They laid everything down, and they accepted what God was trying to do in and through them. And that's what 
was just so different, mm. was true surrender. And it was just something that was just infectious to the entire, everybody there, even outside uh, the chapel. Yeah, so as people, we, uh, we tend to want to capture things. And, you know, like if we could capture lightning in a bottle and sell it, we would. Um, and so people want to know, uh, they're calling this a, a revival or an outpouring is really what Asbury has, has determined that they're calling this because only they said history will determine if it's a revival or not. But it's an outpouring of God's Spirit. Um, people want to know if that can be brought back like to UMHB or even here at First Castroville. What do you think? I would say yes, this can happen here at Castroville. This can here happen here all over the world. Um, there was nothing special about Asbury University. It was just a, another Christian university. But the people, the students there that started this, they just stayed and worshiped God and surrendered control to him. And a revival is not an event. And this is something that I really feel like the Lord's put on my heart. It's not something that just happens once for like a week or two weeks. It's the way that God has called us to live our lives. And so I would just share with you all, like, this can happen here at this church. It can happen in this community. But are you willing to give everything over to him and stop holding on to things with closed fists, but to rest at his feet with open hands and say, use me? All right. So then how then has your personal relationship with Jesus been affected as a result of you being there? You know, that's a... It's a great question, and it's such a complex question. Um, I would say for the first time, truly the first time in my faith, this whole last week I've had the ability to see people, to have that love and compassion that only comes from the Lord. I mean, you can see people just how we see each other with our eyes, but to see people with God's eyes, it's a totally different thing. Um, it's challenged me in my faith of the constraints that I put on God of what he can do. There's so many other stories of, of healing. There's so many other stories of restoration. And the way that it happened, it was just not how we normally do church. And it totally changed my thoughts about God. Um, God worked very personally in my life. Um, for those that, of you that haven't heard my testimony, um, I was born with cerebral palsy. And that is a terminal condition. It can't be healed by medical science. And I would have it the rest of my life. And with that, um, I, never, I had a hard time believing that God was great, that he was good. Because if I was created by him, why would he allow me to live this way and to suffer in this way and there'd be no cure. That was just something very hard for, for me to accept and I was bitter. I was bitter against God and my heart was, heart was hard against him. Um, and that was something that I really had to wrestle with growing up and thank, thankfully the Lord has really um, softened my heart in that way and I've come to um, be okay with it. Um, but. The crazy thing was is that we went to this hotel, and it was at 2 a.m., and there's the check-in was full. And that's kind of odd, you know. You'd think at 2 a.m. it would be empty, and you just get to check-in and go to bed. But everybody there was for the revival. There's people there from Georgia, from Pittsburgh, 
from the country India. And that was really crazy to get to hear his story. Um, and this guy from Georgia, he didn't see me walk in. He didn't see, he just saw me standing there and we had a great conversation. And so he knew nothing about me, but he asked, Logan, what's wrong with your legs? And I was, at first, I was defensive. I'm like, who are you to ask me what's wrong with me, you know? But I, the Lord just kind of spoke to me, and I shared my story and how I've just, I said, I've come to terms with it. I've accepted it, and I'm okay. If God doesn't heal me and I get healed on that day when I'm back with him, then I'll rejoice with him in that. He says, Logan, God is a God who heals, and I believe that he can. So he prayed with me. And in that prayer, he um, called out the lies that I used to believe, that I was not good enough, that God made me incomplete, that I was a failure, that I was an outcast. And he said, Logan, those things aren't true. You're a child of God, and he loves you. And so he prayed for healing for me that night. And I felt the presence of God come over me. And something that I can only describe as electricity. It hit the top of my head, went down my spine, into my feet. And he says, and he asked if you believe that God is healed, you say amen, and I did. And so he said, you know, sometimes healing takes, it's a process and it takes time, but sometimes people wake up after they've gone to sleep, and they're healed. And that Saturday morning, later that morning, this was prayed at 2 a.m. When I woke up at 9, when my feet hit the floor, I knew something was different. And to give you guys some context, my legs used to be two different lengths. But when I stood up that day, they were the same length. I didn't have any nerve pain, and my spine was completely straight. My hips were back in alignment, and I stand before you today, and I cannot pick this foot off the ground no matter how hard I try, and I can touch my toes again, and God has fully, fully healed me, and that challenged my thought about what God can do. The God that we just talked about in the New Testament who healed the nobleman's son is the same God today, so I challenge you in your thinking of what you think God can do. Because he definitely challenged my thinking, and he healed me. It's mm. a good word. I'll admit to you that I understand that we're Baptists, <laughs> okay? But I also know that God doesn't care about that either. And... The very, do you get anyone, was anyone here the first Sunday that I preached? Okay, oh, you're still here. <laughs> <That's> good. <laughs> we, uh, the message is out of Ezekiel 37. It's the valley of, of dry bones. And it talks about a God that restores and a God that brings power and a God that brings restoration. And if we don't believe in the God that brings, that brings restoration, then we've put something on God that doesn't, that limits, that makes it where our faith is not truly full. And while I know that sometimes we hear things that are unexplainable, we serve a God who says, watch this. 
So he said to Ezekiel, son of man, will these bones live? And Ezekiel says, only God, you're the only one that knows that. And God said, I will raise up these dry bones. They will not just be risen. They will take on the sinews and the flesh. And I will breathe my life into them. That's a good word for today. We don't know where you are in your faith's journey. We don't know where you are in understanding how God interacts in your life. But one thing that we know is this, is that we serve a God that we can believe as if he can be trusted. As if the words that John wrote to us, not knowing that 2,000 years later we'd be sitting in a room hearing those words. He challenged us to believe as if God as if God could be trusted, as if God is the one that orders our day and that God is the one that created this world and that he has dominion and power and authority over it. And not only that, Jesus said that if he were to ascend to the Father, he would leave with us his helper, the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit no longer lived in the temple. The Holy Spirit no longer resided out in the wilderness. But instead, the Spirit would take up residence in our very hearts. And I don't know about you, but I've been guilty of resisting the Spirit that lives in my heart. And I want to ask you today. It's maybe today the day that you begin to live as if. Would you pray with us? Heavenly Father, Father, bring us to a point where we repent. We repent of the places where we have ignored your movement. Heavenly Father, help us to know, to know that you can be trusted. God, give us the strength, give us the faith, give us the ability to believe as if Jesus can be trusted. And that we can entrust our entire lives to him. Father, we pray, Lord, that you help us to live anew. To be refreshed. To be encouraged. Father, to see your goodness and your mercy. Father, to live as your kingdom comes. It's in Jesus' name we pray.